can get started. Uh, but kind of before we start, uh, I'm supposed to let you know that if you're the kind of person that it would be helpful to have a recording of a spoken recording, not a singing recording, of the memory verses, uh, that is up now, of me reading it, which is why it is a spoken recording and not a singing recording. I should have had my daughter do it if it was going to be singing. But, um, and if you just go to women's messages, actually you can get to it either through women's uh, Bible study, women's ministries, or you can just go to messages and under women's messages, it'll be there. I think it says um, women's Bible study scripture verse or something like that, but it's um, James 1, 19 through 27, right? Uh, so that's, that's where it is, and if it helps you to listen uh, and it doesn't put you to sleep to drive down the road and listen to me reading James 1, then please do that. Uh, do you have any questions this morning? Yes, Carol. Carol doesn't usually have questions. <laughs> Whose mercy is in view when, when James says God, or says, excuse me, not God, mercy triumphs over judgment? And I will talk about that. It's toward the end. Hopefully we'll have enough time for that, but uh, I will talk about that. I think what you'll find is everybody will be right. <laughs> Don't you love those ones? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like the common core. Hey, no, I, that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> Any other questions? No other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for today and for these women uh, and for your truth. Thank you uh, for the opportunity we had last week uh, just to come together and um, fellowship and to share and to grow. Uh, and I just pray that again this week that we would grow, we would learn from your word and that you would speak your our minds and our hearts, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin by connecting James 1 to James 2. We've talked before about how sometimes James, it's kind of hard to tell. He seems to take really quick right turns or left turns, and uh, sometimes it's hard to make those connections. So I want to spend a little time connecting the two chapters to one another because the key theme uh, is pretty obvious in the first 13 verses of chapter 2. The key theme is discrimination against the poor, in part caused by favoring the rich favoring the wealthy. So how does that then apply to what James was telling us and teaching us in James 1? Well, if you look first at, uh, we'll look first at James 1, 21 through 27, and um, read that. Again, that's not us. Are you able to get it up there? There we go. Thank you very much. Uh, that's, uh, she's very important back there, I'll tell you what. She saves me all the time. You guys might not always realize it, but she does. Um, so this is James 1, 21 through 27, where James says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now James takes those um, pieces of teaching, takes those concepts, and he applies it 
to a specific situation. And that situation is discrimination against the poor. What James is saying is that part of humbly accepting God's word planted in us, part of doing what that word says, part of looking intently into God's perfect law, what he'll go on to call the royal law in today's passage, part of pursuing justice, part of not being polluted by this world and its thinking and its values is not showing favoritism toward the wealthy or toward anyone for an outward um, uh, quality and thus discriminating when one favors the wealthy and thus discriminating the poor. Because favoritism toward one group of people necessarily is at the same time discrimination against another group of people. And so Paul uses, Paul, James uses, I got to stop doing that, he uses both of those words in these 13 verses. So showing favoritism, James is going to tell us, is in direct contradiction to the heart of God's law, which is to love God and to love others. And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about today. So first, James begins by talking about discrimination among God's people. Oh, I forgot to read this whole part. Okay, that's up there too. Uh, But we'll go on to this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So here's the problem, and and he begins by saying, my brothers and sisters, uh, which, as we've said before, in James is an indicator that he's starting a new topic. So now he's starting a new topic, applying what he's already written uh, to this situation, which was ongoing in their churches. And that new topic is discrimination or favoritism, undue favoritism. Now, favoritism and discrimination likely was a problem in the churches to which James was writing. They would have been house churches, um, small gatherings in houses, kind of what you guys did last week. Um, uh, it would be the setting that he's writing about. But in, in a short letter like James, I, I counted because I'm a nerd. There are 108 verses in James. Uh, there are 13 of them just on this subject. That's almost 10% of the book. So this is really important to James, that he would spend this much time on the topic of favoritism, on the topic of discrimination, means he thinks it's really important. And obviously it's something that he was seeing in the churches. But it wasn't just a problem for ancient churches, was it? It's a continuing problem for us today because I believe in our culture in particular, we tend to gravitate those who are more like us. We tend to gravitate toward those who are successful, in the world's eyes. Even when we're choosing leaders, it's like, well, he's a success in the business world. Of course. But what's the character of the person? You know, we, we, we tend to look at that as being the most important indicator of a person. And we also tend to ignore those who are not so successful in the world's eyes. How many times do we, do we walk by and we don't want to look? We don't want to see. We don't want to think about that instead of engaging and caring for those people. And then he goes on to say, those who are believers in our glorious Lord 
Jesus Christ. Those who are believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of only two places in the letter where James refers specifically to Jesus, refers directly to Jesus. The other one is in James 1.1. So this is the only other time. Now, the Lord Jesus, calling Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, was very common. And it's throughout the New Testament that he's called that. But this is the only place in the entire New Testament where the word glory is attached to his name. And it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what James means by that. But probably um, the, the best alternative is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What a beautiful way to refer to Jesus. That is a strong statement about our Lord. In fact, there are theologians who say that, I meant to write this word up too, that say that James has no Christology, which is kind of an understanding of, of Jesus as Messiah. Oh, no, 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 no. This is really high Christology because that word for glory is this word Shekinah. And it is the word in the Greek Old Testament that refers to the glory of God. And it is his amazing, overpowering presence and power. And it is that Shekinah glory at the end of Exodus when the temple is being um, dedicated, not the temple, the tabernacle is being dedicated, and God's glory comes down and rests on the tabernacle. And it's like this crazy Cecil B. DeMille moment where it is so overpowering, the presence of God, the power of God, that the people are like, take it away, Moses, take it away, because they are so overwhelmed by the power and presence, by the glory of God. The closest thing and silliest thing that I can relate this to is 4th of July at our lake cabin. I know that you did not see that coming. Uh, Linda, have you ever been to 4th of July? Have either of you ever been to 4th? Okay, so I've got backup on this, okay? We used to, okay, yeah, I've got backup on this. We used to have people on both sides of our cabins, either side of our cabin, letting off the most incredible if they would have been, like if we would have been in the baseball stadium and they were outside the outfield, illegal fireworks that you can thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars spent by these people and spent by these people. And we were in the middle up on our deck going, Dah! and people were like, you know, thanks for inviting us to 4th of July, but we're never coming back. And so my mom quit inviting people. We were getting burned. We were, I mean, it was horrible. But the next year, my mom said, we got to go out there. I got to make sure they don't burn down our cabin. We need to know if, they, if our cabin burns down tonight that it was their fault. So we went out there, and we're watching it. We're sitting on the deck. We're watching my mom and me and Linda Plambeck and my sister, and we're watching it. And it's okay. And then they get to the grand finale, which is all this ground stuff going crazy. And we stand up, and we go like this. We're backing up. We're backing up. And, and by the end of it, we're back up against the, the uh, front of the cabin just going, I hope we survive. In the crossfire, it was overwhelming. It was just such a powerful display. Fortunately, they don't do that anymore. Just the one side does it, and we're much, it's better. It's not great, but it's better. The people back here we got to talk to, but it's a different story. Um, it's such a, it was such a powerful display. It was overwhelming. That's kind of what James is saying about the glory of Jesus, but he's saying even more than that. He is comparing the glory of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. How much higher Christology can you have than that? To say that Jesus' glory is the glory of God. Um, very strong statement. So particularly, this would have been a particularly good reminder to these people 
who we're placing and assigning far too much misplaced glory in human beings. That's not glorious. Let me tell you what glorious is. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he says that, that if we are followers, if we are believers in this glorious Lord, we are not to show favoritism. Now that word for favoritism literally means to receive the face. And it doesn't just refer to showing favoritism toward the wealthy. It means showing favoritism for any outward thing, any outward appearance. We are not to judge others favorably or unfavorably based on any outward factor. Wealth, clothes, cars, houses, social polish, race, looks, anything outward. We are not to show favoritism or discrimination based on that. We are rather to be like God. And God, look at those outward things, God is rather concerned with our heart. I know you're all familiar with the story of Samuel um, choosing King David as king. Uh, and he had a, a bunch of older brothers, and they were all tall, studly, and good-looking. And then one by one they came out, and Samuel, oh, surely this is the one. Look, look how tall he is. Look how strong he is. Look, he's got to be a great leader. And God, mm -mm. Not that one. Not that one. And then finally he's like, don't you have any more kids? And even the dad's like, I do, but dude's a shepherd. I mean, he's just a little guy. And Samuel said, bring him. And God said to Samuel, consider his appearance. Don't look on the outside, for this is a man after my own heart, and he is the one I have chosen. God's concern is our hearts, not our appearance. And that is what we are supposed to be concerned with it too. God is not impressed with bulging biceps or rock-hard abs, thank the Lord, nor Prada, nor Mercedes, nor Mensa, nor whether someone looks like a cover girl or not. He's concerned with our hearts and if our hearts are after him. And when we are impressed with that which does not matter, outward appearance, we show our hearts to be out of tune with the heart of God. So James is going to give us an example. It's a hypothetical example, but obviously based on this example, this kind of stuff was going on in the churches. And he says two visitors, maybe, maybe new converts, but two visitors come in, and the first one is in fine clothing. That word literally means bright and shining. It's sometimes used of the attire of angels. And so they're just looking, you know, every girl's crazy about a sharp-dressed man. They are looking good when they come in. And, oh, this is the kind of person we want in our church. And then somebody comes in in shabby clothing. That word is literally filthy. And it's the same root word that James used in 121 when he said, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. So the picture he's painting for us is very much of someone who is homeless, someone who is wearing... Um, dirty and, and torn and mismatched clothing. So James is creating this, this picture for us, and these two visitors or new converts, whoever, come in, and one is treated with deference and with respect. Oh, we, let's give you the best seat in the house. How you doing? How long you lived in Omaha? They're giving, you a, they're giving the best preference to. And the other one is treated with disdain, even contempt. Sit at my feet. Some people think that means sit under my feet. 
um, literally, not even giving you a chair. Now, the point here isn't then to treat the wealthy poorly. <laughs> here, sit at my feet in your fine clothes. The point is to treat everyone with the respect and concern they deserve as people made in the image of God, as children that God loves. Now, Paul, then James is going to come back with a verdict for us in verse 4, the verdict on this conduct, and essentially he's going to say, you're guilty. You're guilty. He says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And, and the Greek wording of that is uh, expecting a yes answer. Yes, you have discriminated. Yes, you are judges with evil thoughts. But there's something really interesting about this word discriminated. It's this word diacrino. And it can have two different meanings, depending on the context. It can mean to discriminate against, which is the way the NIV and actually most translations put it. But to say you have discriminated doesn't really advance James's argument very much, does it? It's as if to say, <clears throat> um, you know, don't discriminate, and you have discriminated. Now, that fits the context, but consider the other meaning, which is to waver or to doubt. And if this is what James is saying, if he's saying to waver or to doubt with or, um, among yourselves, that word among yourselves can also be within yourselves. So what James would be saying then is that they are wavering, they are doubting within themselves. In other words, their behavior is another indication of a wavering faith, of a divided soul, of doubled soul behavior. You're saying you believe one thing, and you're acting in another way. This is what Dr. Doug Moose says about this. He says, the improper division being made between the rich and poor reflects the improper divisions harbored in the minds of believers. Consistently Christian conduct comes only from a consistently Christian heart and mind. It doesn't come from a double-souled heart and mind. It comes from one who doesn't doubt, who doesn't waver, and is consistent. And that fits with everything that James has been saying in these verses. So, they are exhibiting double-souled behavior, divided behavior, and they are judges with evil thoughts. They are taking upon themselves a role that is only God's to do. They are taking on the right of judge, and that is a role that belongs only to God. And further, they are literally misjudging those people, just like a judge who makes a wrong judgment or declares someone guilty who is innocent. So then in verses 5 through 7, James goes on and says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is, not the, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So he begins with this word, listen, which always reminds me of Charles Stanley. I know most of you are too young to know Charles Stanley, but when he gets going, he goes, now listen, 
Now listen, and that's what, that was, that's what James is saying. He's saying, now listen, because he's wanting us to pay attention. This is an important point he's about to make. He's emphasizing it. But you'll also notice that he says what? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, he's shifting um, the argument that he is making. He's still talking about favoritism, but now he wants to tell us why it's wrong. Why it's wrong for us to behave in such a way. And the first thing he tells us is that it contradicts God's own attitude toward the poor. Throughout Scripture, God's concern and love for the poor is evident. Everywhere in Scripture, God says he defends the defenseless. He takes care of those who are poor. Now, let me tell you what James is not saying, though. He's not saying that everyone who is poor is saved. Okay, so if you're poor, you're in. That is not what he's saying. That would actually uh, contradict the whole of Scripture. He's also not saying that the poor are saved because they are poor. What he is saying is, hello, look around you. Don't you see um, in your midst are believers who are poor? Surely you see this. Surely you see in your own churches those who are obviously part of the body of Christ who are also poor. God has chosen them no less than one who is a wealthy person. And the conversion of the poor is powerful evidence of God's love for them. And then James tells us, though they are poor in things, they are rich in faith. They are people who depend solely on God, not on their own resources, for they have none on which to depend. And so they depend on God rather than on themselves or their resources or their money. And that is a temptation for those who are wealthy to do that. So rather than honoring these poor people as God does, the members of the church have insulted and dishonored them. And that is a contradiction of God's attitude. Therefore, it's wrong. The second reason that James gives them for it being wrong is very pragmatic. Uh, They are honoring people who have mistreated them. And that makes no sense to do that. Um, this, is, this was common in uh, the New Testament world, in the ancient world, where the gap between the rich and the poor was enormous. And there really was no middle class. You were vi- either wealthy or you were poor, pretty much. And there were very few wealthy people. But at the same time, they held all the power. And oftentimes, especially in unbelievers, they took advantage of the poor. They exploited the poor, who had no means of improving their social situation. So they were exploiting the poor by becoming rich at the expense of the poor. And James tell us they were dragging them into court, perhaps to pay off loans that they hadn't paid off and putting them in prison for that, perhaps as part of religious persecution. Because we know the third thing he says is that they were slandering the name of the one to whom they belong, which refers to God and more specifically to Jesus. But that word slandering is the word blasphemio, and it's obviously the word from which we get the word blaspheme. And to blaspheme God in the Bible doesn't just mean to literally blaspheme God. If you, it means any blasphemy, any slander that concerns God. 
And so this, this slander not only was about God, but it was most likely also about the poor believers and the believers in the church. And you are honoring people who are doing these things while you are dishonoring those who love Jesus. So here's James' primary point in this passage. He's, he's saying that to curry favor with anyone simply because he is wealthy or any sort of outside factor is to fundamentally misunderstand the gospel and to injure the faith. James is going to continue this line of argument, and, and now he's going to assert that a third reason that it's wrong is that it violates God's law of love, beginning at verse 8. It says this, if you, are real, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law, the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So favoritism violates God's law of love. This is the most important reason why favoritism is wrong. Because it violates the royal law, which is essentially the same thing as what in James 1 he called the perfect law that gives freedom. It is royal because it was given by Jesus, King Jesus, and then that, thus it is a royal law. And it is what sums up all of the heart of Jesus' teaching and our faith. In fact, if you look in Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment, that's exactly what he said. He said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up all the law and the prophets. And James is just repeating what, essentially what Jesus said. So favoritism is a sin because it violates the law to love others. And in a sense, it violates the law to love the God who created and loves them. And so when we do that, we sin. When we discriminate, either by dishonoring the poor or by trying to win favor with the rich or anyone else just because of some outward thing, um, we are convicted as lawbreakers. Why then does he say that when we break one law, we're guilty of breaking all of it? Well, he tells us why in verses 10 and 11. Because breaking even one commandment uh, incurs guilt for all of it. For the whole law. It makes us transgressors of the law. Now, of course, none of us, well, if you have just broken one law, I'd really like to meet you. Uh, but none of us has. But why? Why does he say we've broken all of it? Um, because we aren't just disobeying a law. Think of it this way. When, when your kids, when some of you, your kids are little now, and they do something wrong, do you ever say, you have just broken the, 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 you have just disobeyed the rules of our house? Is that what you say? No, you say, you've just disobeyed who? Mommy. Yeah, it's based on a person. 
And in this case, it's based on the lawgiver. It's based on a relationship with God. The point isn't the law itself. It's that we have broken the, the law of God. We have broken his intent and his heart in the law that he has given it. And so we aren't just disobeying a God. We're disobeying God. And when we disobey, we are dishonoring and ignoring the will and the heart of a God who loves us. So the key point here isn't the text of the law, but the person and the relationship that we have with him, the one who speaks the law, which is God. And then he gives these two examples. He says, for the one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Or maybe it's the other way around. Why those examples? Why adultery and murder? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. First, they are both really ob obvious examples of dishonoring another human being, either through murder or through adultery. Uh, betrayal and dishonor. But in addition, Jesus used these two when he was teaching about the law. When he said, I, I tell you, you, you've heard do not murder. I tell you, anyone who gets angry at someone else has committed murder in his heart. You say, you hear do not commit adultery. I say anyone who's lusted after another person has committed adultery in their heart. And so Jesus is saying it's tantamount to the same thing. It is still sin. So there's more than just literal murder and literal adultery involved here. Further, the Old Testament refers to any sin as adultery against God. Read the, read the book of uh, Hosea. Hosea's life was a picture of adultery. God kept telling him to marry this woman, Gomer. Who names her daughter Gomer? Anyway, who, uh, to marry this woman, Gomer, who was a, a prostitute. And, and when she sins against him, when she's unfaithful, he says, go back, clean her up, love her again. And it was a picture of God's relationship with Israel. And by their sin, they betrayed God. They were unfaithful to God. Any sin is adultery against God. It is a betrayal of God. It is being unfaithful to God. And so I believe that's what James is also saying. And he may see in this dishonoring of the poor um, a sin that's, that's tantamount to murder, much like Jesus said, anger uh, is uh, tantamount to murder. But he ends with an exhortation. And essentially, this exhortation, he says, when speaking and acting, remember that you will one day stand before God. That's motivation. And so he says, so be merciful. Because if you haven't shown mercy, you won't get mercy. Be merciful. Because, when, because we have been shown mercy, we must also extend mercy mercy. Mercy actively seeks to love and care for others. And then he ends with this wonderfully positive and very powerful statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because of Christ and in Christ, God's mercy triumphs over the judgment we would otherwise deserve. And I do believe he is referring to God's mercy in this. But I also think that James is making an additional point. Because throughout this passage, James has been talking about the conduct, the actions of human beings. Whether they're uh, t treating uh, other people with respect, regardless of who they are or whether they are not. And so his point has been the conduct of human beings. And so I believe 
that to others indicates our desire to honor God with our actions. Mercy should triumph over judgment in our own lives as well as we extend mercy to others. Because such mercy is evidence of a changed heart, a heart that has been changed by the grace of God. We are not perfect, and we can never be perfect. We are incapable of keeping the royal law perfectly. But, and Doug Moose says this better than I, so I will quote him, but our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. And it is on the basis of this union with the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us that we can have confidence of vindication at the judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? Well, I want to take a couple minutes to just apply this truth of, of 1 through 13. I want to begin by telling you a true story um, uh, about, uh, again, about my parents. I'm sorry, but, <laughs> but I'm not. Uh, so um, my, my mother absolutely loved giving parties. I would rather go to the dentist, and I just told Angie today how much I hate going to the dentist than give a party. And maybe it's from my childhood, where from a very early age, I was taught to, you know, serve and to help and to and clean house and all that stuff that we had to do uh, before a party. And she gave fabulous parties. I mean, she gave amazing parties. And oftentimes, because of my dad's job, there were very influential, very wealthy people at these parties. And it was not too many years ago, maybe just five or six or seven years ago, that she gave a luncheon um, for a, a woman who was, I think, she, I think it was a baby shower, but a very, one of the wealthiest, daughter-in-law of one of the wealthiest people in Omaha. And um, she asked me if I would help her. So I did, and I was going around asking people, what they, would you like punch, would you like tea, and taking them their drinks. There was one particularly wealthy woman there who I'd never met, who, when I was serving her drinks and I was trying to be kind to her, just absolutely treated me with disdain. She would have nothing to do with me. She just looked at me like I was nothing and whatever, and I just kept serving because that's what I was taught to do and whatever. And then my mother said, Amy, 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 there's someone I want to introduce you to. And she took me over and she said, this is my daughter, Amy. I wish you could have seen that lady's face. <laughs> and her attitude toward me changed immediately. All of a sudden, she cared about who I was and what my, my thoughts were and wanted to engage me in conversation. And I did. But see, that's the world's value system. When I was the servant serving the drinks, I wasn't worth her time. When I was Danny Colliday's daughter, oh, how lovely to meet you. And isn't it lovely to meet you as well? <laughs> uh, that is the world's value system. God is not impressed by the things that impress us. And oftentimes our world tells us that we are valuable only if we are worth something materially, only if we are successful. And that allure of our culture, that message of our culture is everywhere, particularly in our commercials. One right now, besides the one that's every heartbeat should be all about gaming, what, Google? What do you mean? That's what my heart should beat for, playing this game. The, but the other one that really gets me is you wake up in your luxury bed and you roll your head off your luxury pillow and you get into your luxury shower and shower with your luxury soap and you go down to your luxury coffee maker and make your luxury coffee and add your luxury sugar and you walk out of your luxury house and step into your luxury car 
which makes everything else seem ordinary. Boy, our culture likes to give us that message, doesn't it? That that is what's important. That's what we should seek. Ladies, money is not evil. Wealth is not evil. But when we use it as a measure of personal worth, then we have fallen prey to the value system of our culture. When we either esteem others or not, based on wealth or any exter external uh, factor, what they look like, um, where they live, their race, anything. If we attempt to curry favor with them for our own personal gain, James tells us flat out that we are sinning. There's a young woman on American Idol this, um, this season, and if she makes it to the finals, please vote for her. Uh, her name is Paula Kennard Hunt, and she, this has something to do with what we're doing. She was, uh, she was a graduate. She, uh, she graduated from Bellevue West the year my daughter was a freshman, so my daughter sang with her. Lovely, lovely Christian young woman is in the Air Force and sings with the Heartland of America band. Lovely, lovely young woman. Boy, she's getting a lot of attention right now from people she hasn't heard from in years. All of a sudden, they want to be around her. All of a sudden, they want a piece of Paula. All of a sudden, why? Because she's on American Idol. But you know what? She was Paula a month ago. You know what I'm saying, don't you? You know exactly what I'm saying. She was Paula a month ago. She was the same Christian girl. Those are her real friends. Those are the people that, that value her for something other than an external appearance. I hope she makes it, and I'll vote for her, but I, I loved her when she was just Paula Kennard. Um, so that is what Paul is telling us, warning us against. Instead of seeing people as a dollar sign, we are to see them the way God sees them because God looks at the heart, not the outward trappings. Psalm 51 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. The poor also, James tells us, are rich in faith. Again, Dr. Moose says Christians, however poor in material possessions they may be, possess spiritual wealth presently and anticipate greater blessings in the future. It is from this spiritual vantage point, not the material, that Christians should judge others. Whether believers or unbelievers, people should not be evaluated by Christians according to the standards of the world according to those outside things. Why are we not to evaluate others by the standards of the world? Well, first of all, God makes plain that he delights in having a different economy than the world. God's economy is not the same as ours. He delights in showering his grace on those whom the world has discarded. For they are the very ones who understand their need of God. They don't depend on themselves or their accumulation of wealth because they don't have it. They know they need God. I heard it once said that it is easier to um, convince a homeless addict of their need for God than it is a wealthy person. We were at a funeral, my mother and I, a number of years ago, of a very, very wealthy person. And the song he had sung in his funeral was, I did it my way. And my mother and I cried, not because of grief, but because we knew that this man had stood before God saying, I did it my way. That's the world's value system. And it was a very somber moment for us. 
More importantly, we are not to judge according to the world's value system because every person is a person made in God's image and loved by him. Our value to God is based on that and not on worldly standards that disappear like a vapor. But ladies, what James would tell us is that this is not intended to just be some sort of lip service. We are to do more than say we treat other people equally, that we treat other people with love and respect no matter who we are. We're supposed to actually do it. Don't just be hearers of the word. Do what it says. Jesus particularly and intentionally reached out to and spent time with those whom the world had discarded, the poor, the lepers. He touched the lepers. Nobody touched lepers. The tax collectors, the sinners. He even was uh, chastised for that. He was criticized for spending time with sinners. Jesus intentionally did so. When he told the story of the Good Samaritan, which you all know, it was because somebody had said to him, exactly what do I need to do to get to heaven? And, and he said, you've heard the law. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and faith, strength, and love your neighbor. And the guy's like, okay, love God, that's fine. But who's my neighbor? I mean, who, how many people am I just going to have to love here? I mean, am I only going to love the ones I want to love, or do I have to love? And so he, then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and then he turns and he has a question for the guy. And he looks at the guy and says, who was the good neighbor? And he's the guy who showed mercy, the Samaritan who showed mercy. And Jesus' words were, go and do likewise. Ladies, that's our mandate. Go and do likewise. Go and show mercy on those whom the world has discarded. Go and show uh, genuine respect and love for those who have been disregarded by the world. Give them regard. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your word. Father, it, um, it teaches me, um, it encourages me, it convicts me to my core. I may teach it, Father, but I am not real good at living it sometimes. Father, make us doers, not just hearers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies. See you next week.